All right, um, last week we saw how many of the Pharisees had accepted the gospel and recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. There were Sadducees that did, there were Zealots that did, and they had all responded to that gospel. And we saw the Spirit working in their lives. This week, we're going to basically see the beginning of the end of Jerusalem. And if I'm honest, this is not my favorite thing to talk about here tonight. I kind of maybe mentioned that last week, but there is very little Scripture tonight, and it's history. And I don't really like doing that. But I feel that this is an important part of history, and I want you guys to kind of recognize God's fingerprints and that even in history, God is there. And for us to see His faithfulness through history. And as we go through this um, lesson, there's going to be a few more of, I guess, lessons like this, where we're only going to be able to see God's faithfulness. And I thought about that a little bit as I was just thinking about it this week. It's like, man, I just don't like this as I was preparing I thought, but you know what? This is kind of like our day-to-day -day lives. That we can see the Word of God in our day-to-day -day lives. We can see God working in our lives even when we're not at church, even when we're not studying Scripture at that time, but when we're at work or we're you know, just walking down the road, that we can see God in His creation. We can see His... His faithfulness in, in my life, in my li the life of my family and, and friends. And because of that, I just thought, you know, we, we need to look for God in history as well. Now, with that little disclaimer before, too, one thing that uh, Mark Montague had asked last week was um, the issue with Herod and being a Jew, but wasn't he an Idumean? And I said, yeah, I remember that, but I don't remember exactly how all of that worked. So I had to look that up. And to find the answer to that, it was pretty simple, actually. He was both. He actually, his father, Antipat, Antip I always want to say Antipater, Antipater, was an, Id, um, uh, an Idumean or Edomite. So he was, by blood, an Edomite. Herod the Great, but they married. he married a Jew for a wife, and then he himself, then Herod the Great, was raised as a Jew. Even though he was an Idumean by blood, he was raised as a Jew. And that's how he knew the Jewish ways and the Jewish culture and all of that, and was accepted in part. Now again, not saying he was a good man or anything like that, but just that's the answer to that question. So, we know that Jerusalem's fall was predicted, not only by Jesus, but if you go all the way back before, you know, Jesus says, I leave you this house desolate and don't weep for me. Um, when you see, you know, Jerusalem surrounded, though, he says that, but those weren't just Jesus' words there. He was quoting Daniel, and it goes back to Daniel 9.25, and we will look at that here in just a moment, but... That was the prediction, or at least the Jews even understood, that Jerusalem was going to fall because of what Daniel had said in chapter 9. 
And there you're going to see that it was predicted that the city would fall after the Messiah would come. So that too should have been an indicator for many to realize that Jesus is, or in even their case, was the Messiah after he had ascended. So really for somebody today to come and claim to be the Messiah, it would be very difficult because there were so many, I guess, uh, flags or, or things that had to be met before Jesus could come. And certain things that cannot happen after. We've talked about he had to be the son of David. It would be very hard to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, even today with all of our genetics, that you came from that family line. And in some ways, I think that that should be an encouragement for us, or maybe not an encouragement, but just it's good to know that there should be nobody that could come and claim to be a Messiah today. There, it just doesn't fit the Scriptures. And yet we see one of the things that I, I was showing my wife in getting a lot of these videos coming from Israel and whatnot, there's all kinds of them where you'll see the, the, the soldiers out there and they're singing this song that we're waiting, we believe in the coming Messiah. If he tarries, we will wait. Now on one hand, this one person was posting it as if it was such a beautiful thing and it just made my heart break because they don't recognize the Messiah has come. On one hand, you think, man, these people, they, they love God. They're just waiting for their Messiah. But they've been blinded. And what we see here, though, is that they should know. They should know that it's it, he's had to have come in the past somewhere. We should be looking in the past to see the Messiah because Jesus is the only one that's going to fit. Anyway, here is Daniel 9.25. It says, No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that would be the Messiah, that's the word, really that's Christ. You know when we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is the anointed one. That is what it means in Greek. Okay, it's, uh, I've said before, he was not the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That's his title. Okay? Until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. So he has to be there. He'll be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Again, even in Jesus' day, many understood that Jerusalem was going to fall due to these verses. Many of the Messianics knew. Now, I'm not going to go through the 70s, you know, the sevens here, but uh, you've probably all had Bible studies, and maybe someday if we go through Daniel, we'll go through it in more detail. But the bottom line is you can see that the temple being rebuilt and Jesus coming is marked by this very prophecy. And so, even looking at this verse alone, to say that the Messiah, you know, is, is we're waiting for him to come, I don't know how you miss it, because it lines up perfectly when he came the first time. But like I said, we're not going to go into those details tonight. 
So Jesus warned. He warned that this was going to happen. He quoted Daniel. And then in 66 AD, um, we see that there were many, many revolts that took place. And it was just getting worse and worse. The Romans were getting more and more sick of the Jews and the little rebellion, the zealots, and uh, the little murders here and there. And so from 66 to 70 AD, they had all of these quarreling and, and fighting and little murders going on and little attacks until 68, the Romans sent Vespasian, the emperor there, to come by land and sea, and they surrounded Jerusalem. I shouldn't say this. Not, Vespasian wasn't the emperor, but uh, the uh, army guy, whatever he is. Um, and so they surrounded Jerusalem. Now this is going to be important because remember Jesus' words. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation and Jerusalem being surrounded, he says, you, what do you do? You, you go to the hills. Flee. Well, many people didn't flee. 69 AD, we see kind of 69 and 70. 70 is pretty much when we attribute it, but it's a fall, spring thing. Um, all but Jerusalem is conquered and the Romans go home with great rejoicing because they think we've won. In 69 AD, the Jews think the Romans have quit. They didn't realize why the Romans went back home, though. What they didn't understand is Nero had died, and they were trying to find a new emperor. So Vespasian goes back, and he is going to kind of help with that, and even I don't think he knew, but he is going to be appointed at that time then to replace Nero. So once Vespasian becomes the emperor at that point then, then he sends his son Titus back. So all that rejoicing that Jerusalem had, thinking that everything was safe, all falls apart. Because now Jerusalem is about to be surrounded a second time. And they're not going to be able to escape. So... Those that listened to Jesus' words the first time when Jerusalem was surrounded by Vespasian were spared. I'm going to hit that a little bit later. But it's important to understand, as you're going to see, history records there were a large group of people who fled Jerusalem around six, between 66 and 68 A.D. because of these revolts and they saw the handwriting on the wall. They saw it coming. They knew Jesus' words. And so, they followed. Well, like I said, I'll talk about that more later. But 70 AD, Titus comes back, and he surrounds Jerusalem with about 60,000 soldiers. Now, I'm getting this from Eusebius and Josephus, and basically those records are where this stuff is coming from. So in the summer of 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed on what is called the 9th of Av, or the 9th of August, on our calendar. It just so happened, and I believe by divine providence, that that is the same day that the first temple was destroyed 
by the Babylonians. And so the ninth of Av has become, in Jewish culture, a terrible day because the temple fell. Now we have talked about this in the past that I believe that it was by divine providence that the temple fell. While many look at this as a day of you know, a terrible thing, I'm not saying it was all good, but I'm saying that God's plan was to have that temple destroyed. I don't think he wanted it to be there because he is saying, you are now that temple. We have talked about that before. But I think it's very important because we live in a society today that has got this false Zionism, this false sense of, of you know, we just have to bless the Jew and we want this temple rebuilt. And, and Why would you want to rebuild this temple? Now, Scripture says it's going to happen, but why would you want that? Because we're the third temple. You, you really wouldn't want something that is, for them, a means of salvation outside of the Messiah, Jesus. Yet this is what many, even today in the church, are looking forward to and excited. Oh, the third temple, the third temple. You know, and it's like, no, this is, we, Jesus, he is the temple of God and he is made us the temple of God in whom the Spirit lives. And we should be remembering that. And so while I understand, you know, the ninth of Av, and yes, this is a, a time of mourning, don't forget that this is God's plan. He is in control of history. If he didn't want that temple to fall, it would not have fallen. Well, go ahead. It takes away their ability to sacrifices Yep, they want to reinstitute sacrifices in place of the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so, who was it that fled? The Nazarenes. They are this new political party. We talked about how the Pharisees came about. We talked about how the Sadducees. We talked about the Essenes. But now we have a new group, the Nazarenes, that come on the scene. These people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And so, this new party, who is it led by? It seems that James is the one, according to history, as well as you can see, as we looked in the book of Acts, we see when James get up, to, he's the last one to speak. He has the final word of authority. He seems to be the Nasi, or the ruler, the prince, the, the guy in charge the head of the church at that time. James, son of Zebedee, or James, brother of Jesus. Brother of Jesus. So then we have Simon, a cousin of Jesus, um, that is going to later lead them out of Jerusalem. Now this is according to Eusebius, is where I'm getting this, okay? I'll read that in a minute. Um, James is killed, martyred, and then this other James, or Simon, I should say, comes to replace him. And Simon then is going to be the one that is going to lead them out of Jerusalem because of Jesus' words. This is what Eusebius says. Um, Simon of Jerusalem was selected as James' successor after the conquest of Jerusalem, which took place immediately after the martyrdom of James. 
Flavius Josephus puts James, um, his first arrest before he is killed by a procurator, I don't know, Albinius or something, uh, 63 AD, and then his martyrdom soon after that. And so when he was martyred, then Simon is the one that comes in and takes place, uh, his place. And it says, Simon prevailed against Thebatus, whom the church fathers deemed a her I don't know how to say this word, heresiarch. <laughs> Basically, I had to look it up, a leader in heresy. Uh, and Simon led most of the Messianic Christians to Pella before the outbreak of the first Jewish war in 66 in the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 AD. So again, this is what history is recording, is that these people knew Jesus' words, and they took him at his word, so they fled. And because of that, the Messianics were spared at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. Those people who listened were spared. Then uh, the destruction of this temple, once that happens, it creates a huge void for those people who are left behind. Because what are you going to do? If your, sal your salvation, your faith is all based on this temple and God's presence being at this temple, and in order to be forgiven, you have to make these sacrifices and all of that. What are you going to do? You can see why for them this would be a very, very bad day, the ninth of Av. Well, this guy, Yohanan ben Zaki, he escaped from Jerusalem by being taken out in a coffin somehow just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he went to the Roman governor and he asked, if they could set up the Sanhedrin again, but that it would be not in Jerusalem, but rather in the city of Yavne, which is southeast of uh, Tel Aviv even to this day. The question was, who is going to be able to rule the Sanhedrin? Now remember, last week we talked about this as well. The Sanhedrin was primarily composed of the Sadducees. They were the ones in charge, but there were Pharisees that were in there. And so I did some more research on that as well to find out some of those answers. And the answer seemed to be that the Sanhedrin held the power of authority, or the, like they were the ones in charge, like their name was on the front building, but the Pharisees seemed to exercise the authority more. But there were both that were in there. It was kind of like what we said, Republicans and Democrats in the House. Okay, And so that's what was going on. But by and large, it was the uh, Sanhedrin, and we talked about that before, that when it was first started, it was probably a little bit more pure than later. But then when, after the Maccabean Revolt took place, they replaced the leaders with these Hellenized Jews, these people that had more of a Greek philosophy, more of a worldly culture, and these are the people that are ruling when Jesus comes. These people who are a little bit more Hellenized and um, non, not as biblical in their thinking. Now, they were biblical, don't get me wrong, but, you know, pharisaical, for lack of a better term. So anyway... You've got a few different people who are in the running who could lead this new Sanhedrin that would be put up in Yavne. The Sadducees, 
you know, they were the priests, though, typically. So if you're going to be a priest, what do you do if there's no temple? So their job description, for the most part, the Sadducees, they were just kind of, by default, go away. No temple, no Sadducees. The Essenes, they were dwindling in numbers already. They were, you know, these hermit, the Amish of the day. And they didn't believe in evangelizing or doing anything else. And they didn't even really believe in procreating. It was kind of like the monks, you know, don't, don't marry, don't have children. And so their numbers were dwindling. They weren't a, a, of any influence by this time. And then you had the Zealots. Well, they kind of lost their support because, well, they lost. And so now nobody really liked the Zealots. Well, the Nazarenes, a new one, however, their leader said that this was going to happen, predicted that it would fall, so you would think that might gain some success or you know, following. However, instead, they were looked down upon because they abandoned us. They fled the city. And because they fled, these Nazarenes were traitors. And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Because they're the only ones that really have anything to stand for anymore. So from 75 to 135 A.D. is a huge pivotal time in history and has created what we now today even see as Judaism. This is going to create the rise of what we call today rabbinical Judaism. And I cannot stress enough how evil that is. Okay? It is, it is really barely Christian when it comes down to it. So we had biblical Judaism before. And yes, there were problems. In biblical Judaism, you had the Pharisees. They built up, here's the law of God, and they built up this fence that said, this is exactly what it means, and you can't go out this fence. And then you had the Sadducees. They, they all loved God. In some cases, they loved themselves more than God, which was the problem. They loved power. They loved all those things. But it was still based on Scripture. They just didn't understand certain things. The Sadducees, the same way. You know, they, they, the problem with the Pharisees is they had the oral traditions. Not just the written word of God, but the oral. The Sadducees had the written word of God, but we don't believe in the spirit part of it. And so you had all of these people where nobody was getting it right, just like today. All these churches, and none of us have it right. Well, anyway, the Pharisees then become the one that get permission to start the synagogue up uh, their Sanhedrin at Yavne, and they begin to form what is called rabbinical Judaism. The first thing they had to discuss, go ahead. Is that like their headquarters, like, like Rome is for the Catholic Church? It was at that time, yeah. <laughs> it will later get moved more towards Galilee, um, but at this point, Yavne is where it begins. Anywhere but Jerusalem at that point. And, you know, much smaller. 
Well, the first thing that they had to discuss was this. Now that they've convened, they've got order, we're going to, hey, we're going to, we're starting a church. Okay. And what they decide is, how are we going to be atoned for? No temple, no sacrifices, no forgiveness. So, Yohanan ben Zaki, this guy I mentioned here before, he used the scriptures to come up with an answer. And this is really what rabbinic Judaism is famous for, and frankly, some churches even today, is taking scripture, taking little sound bites out of context and making a doctrine out of that, rather than letting scripture interpret the scriptures and taking the scriptures as a whole. And he quoted that verse from Samuel and uh, Hosea. Hosea 6 here, really, God desires mercy or charity, not sacrifice. Hosea 6, verse 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so, using that springboard, he came up with these three things where atonement will come from. Since God doesn't desire uh, sacrifice, you know, in the temple, he desires instead charity, giving of alms, helping the poor. He, desire, he desires prayer, and he desires repentance. So through prayer, repentance, and good deeds, uh, some will add Torah study to that, studying scripture. Uh, however, Torah study, we have to be careful about too, because, well, I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, problem being, I think I've told you this story before, but when I take people in Jerusalem, when we go to Jerusalem, you can go to the um, Temple Institute where they are building the temple. They've got all the pieces ready for it to go. All they need is the temple mount. They'll have that thing up in a week. But when you ask the people that work there this question, how can you be saved if there's no sacrificial system? Here's the answer they give you. And this is all because of a post-cross, post-70 AD teaching by Yohanan ben Zaki. That's where they get this idea today. If you go to and stop one of these Jews in Hastings and ask them that question, here's the answer you're going to get, and this is why. They said, at this time, every Jew is a priest. Well, kind of right. <laughs> At least Jesus has made us a priesthood of believers, right? They said the temple wasn't needed. The synagogue, though, remained as a center of worship at that time. No temple, but the synagogues are still there. They said, basically, God is no longer necessary. The sacrificial system was based on grace. Now, I find that interesting because they're not far off on that either. They said the animal is killed rather than you who deserves death. So the sacrificial system was grace-based. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, they just are missing it. They're missing the mark because they're missing the sacrifice of Jesus. So it became more of a Greek-centered philosophy as we talked about last week that rather than it being based on God and God being the center and God being the means of it, it meant you are now the means of salvation. Your good works, 
When it gets down to it, rabbinic Judaism and Catholicism are like this. It's based on works and what you do. Logic, reason, and a fence that was put up. All of these things replace God. You reason out why God told you to do things. You reason out why you don't have to do them or why you do have to do them or whatever. So logic and reason, man interpreting it versus God interpreting it became the foundation. And frankly, this is why I find it so difficult sometimes to witness to Jews. I find it equally frustrating to witness to some Catholics sometimes. Because I can quote Scripture and give them the Scripture and give them the Scripture, but it doesn't matter what Scripture says. What matters is what your priest says that Scripture says. Or what church history says. And I go to the Jews. I remember witnessing to a guy at Crossroads. There was a Jew there. And I was talking to him. And I was walking him through Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Two very messianic passages that point to Jesus being the Messiah. And I was asking him, who is this? His answer, Joseph. And I said, well, when did this happen to Joseph? You know, going through those things. And it didn't matter because that's what they're taught. And Isaiah 53 is not taught or talked about in synagogues today. It's, it's left out. But they know that it's Joseph, even though we're not going to study it, it's Joseph. And they're happy to accept that because the rabbi tells me so. And so it is so similar. Now, it's not just Catholics. It's not just, I've met other Christians who will have that same attitude. Why do you believe this? Well, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just what you know, I've been told. I don't know. It's just, you know, my pastor says that. And I think that is a dangerous place. That is why we need to be in the Word of God all the time. Because the Word of God is where these answers come from. Not from me. Not from your pastor. Not from some synodical president. Or a rabbi. Or a priest. Yeah. And basically, it's, it's from my understanding, it's more of a man-made interpretation of things. The halakha. It's a man-made rule, not, not a scriptural one, I think. If so. Um, so this 60-year period is really when this rabbinic Judaism starts to take shape and form from 70 A.D. to 130 A.D., roughly. And it's at this time that there are some good things that come about, but just misdirected. There's a lot of unity that was developed at that time. So they got what are called these prayer books or siddur. Sometimes you'll see things quoting when you're doing Bible studies. It'll say siddur this or whatever. It's quoting some Jewish prayer. That's all that is. <coughs> but what they wanted is they wanted everybody to be doing the same thing. And I think there's some value to that. Matter of fact, a lot of churches used to be like that. It used to be, you know, I grew up in the Lutheran church, it used to be that you could go anywhere in the country and you would have the same thing basically being taught because you had a certain text that was supposed to be being preached from. 
whether you were in California or Nebraska, you could go to a church on Sunday and the reading that week would be the same. There was unity. And doctrinally, they would kind of stand on the same thing as well. Unfortunately, sometimes tradition can become halakha. It can become a man-made rule. And so the reason this happened, though, is when they were in Jerusalem, it was very natural. Everything was kind of the same. Now, because of 70 AD, people were spread out all over, so they came up with this idea to how to somehow keep unity among the, the Jewish community. So this is what they ended up doing for that. Um, the Haggadah or the Haggadah, they, that is that little booklet that at Passover families will use and it helps you, you know, go through. It was developed at this time as well, more so. Just to create that uniformity. So basically, rabbinic tradition holds that the details and the interpretation of Torah, meaning the laws of God, they are called the oral Torah or oral law. They said that these things were originally unwritten. And it was based off of the law given to Moses. Moses gave it to the people. And that it was just orally transferred down throughout history. Now we mentioned that before, that when Jesus was around, the Pharisees believed in the written Torah and the oral Torah. The Sadducees only accepted the written word. I line up with the Sadducees on that part. I don't believe that there was an oral Torah. I believe that it was all written down. And we may talk about that weeks later. But bottom line is, it was man's words that corrupted the written word. They also adopted a calendar at this time. So today, you know, you can have like a Jewish calendar. You can go and find out when Passover is. You can find out when everything is. And it's all there. Now, it is based on the, you know, the moon and all of that kind of stuff. But they adopted this calendar so no matter where you were, you knew when to celebrate this so everybody would be celebrating at the same time. They canonized the Bible in what is called the Tanakh. Now, it's important you hear this word Torah and you hear the word Tanakh. Don't get those confused. And then you hear the word Talmud, too. Don't get that confused. Those are three words that I think are important for you guys to understand. Tanakh, Talmud, Torah. Today it seems to be kind of hip or whatever among Messianic communities to, I'm a Torah follower. or what, what, What's that mean? It, it, it kind of bugs me a little bit, to be honest with you, only because of our witness to others. Technically, there's nothing wrong with it. What is Torah? It's the five books of Moses. The Pentateuch. There's really absolutely nothing wrong with it. But it's used oftentimes to emphasize that we still believe in those five books of Moses. But So Torah is not a bad thing. Tanakh is not a bad thing. Tanakh is the Bible. Where does that come from? I'll explain here coming up, but or did I talk about it last? I think I did, didn't I? T is for Torah. 
the Nevevim, Netvim, and the Ketuvim, which is basically the prophets and the, the Psalms and so on in the writing. So it's TNK, and it's for those groups, just like we organize the groups of the, a book of the Bible into sections. That comprises the same Old Testament that you have is the Tanakh. That's all that is. Okay, just the Hebrew way of, of understanding it. Now, at that time, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Bible, actually had Maccabees and Enoch in it. The Hebrew scriptures did not have those in it, though. So, kind of interesting. Now, the Hebrews did study those books. We see it found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, uh, Enoch, you know, not Maccabees. Well, I don't. Maccabees might have been. I can't remember, but for sure Enoch. Um, but they still did not have it in their canonized type understanding. But technically, the Jewish canonized scripture is brought about after the 70 A.D. destruction. And they called the head of the Sanhedrin at that point then the Nasi, which just simply means prince, ruler, that kind of thing. And they said that if you were going to be head of the Sanhedrin, you must be in the line of David. Well, it isn't because it was the Greeks. The Septuagint came about more so because once the Hellenization came and all of that too, and actually even before that, it was it was the educated way of society. And so basically it became a lot of people could speak the Greek language. And so it was put in that language for that reason. It wasn't that the Greeks were saying, all right, we're going to take your stuff and we're going to put it here. It was more the Jews that were speaking Greek, and especially with the Hellenization after that. I'd say, I don't remember what it is, if it's either 40 or 60% of the New Testament, the quotes that even Jesus gives comes from the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the um, Old Testament. So that's what's going on then. Jerusalem has fallen, 70 AD. Many Messianics fled, and they were spared. 117 AD comes around, and we have Hadrian becomes the emperor. Now, before he's appointed, and now at this time there are lots of Jews in Rome. Matter of fact, 10% of the 80 million seem to be Jews. And so one of the, his you know, running aspects, even though it wasn't a democracy like this, was that he was going to rebuild the temple for Jerusalem. And so the Jews really wanted Hadrian. They supported him for a while. What ends up happening is he keeps putting it off, he keeps putting it off, he keeps putting it off until finally the Jews are getting fed up with this. 130 AD, Hadrian changes his mind, and instead of building a temple on the Temple Mount, he builds, well, he builds a temple on the Temple Mount, just not one for God. He builds one for Jupiter. And I'm going to, if I have time, I'll give you a little rundown of that here in a little bit. But the, the Temple Mount becomes the site of, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say the Temple Mount, but Jerusalem becomes a site of this Temple of Jerusalem, or Temple of uh, Jupiter. Wouldn't that at least be the second time that happened, or was it Zeus that was in that temple during the time of Maccabees? In the time of Maccabees, it was Zeus, yeah. And it was defiled at that point. 
But the temple was still there. They just defiled it. This time the temple's been destroyed and he's now builds this temple for Jupiter. Now, you might remember when we were talking about the third temple a year or so ago, I said that the Jews had an opportunity to try and build and it was during this time somewhere that they did actually, they were going to rebuild one. They were all excited about it and remember there was these ball, like explosions of fire, gas explosions that took place on there. The, I don't remember who it was, which historian records it, but these explosions took place and it stopped the building of the temple there too. It's almost like God was divinely intervening and saying, no, you will not have this third temple. So, so anyway, that happens. The Jews are now all upset here in 130 AD right after this happens. It upsets them so much that there is a rebellion that's rising up again. And we have the Bar Kokhba or Kokhba rebellion. And this one actually ends up really being worse than the 70 AD rebellion. 70 AD gets all the fame more because of the history we have of Josephus and so on recording it. But this is even a greater rebellion and greater destruction in many ways than the 70 AD one. Because Jerusalem is still there. Okay, they're even talking about rebuilding a temple there under Hadrian. They want that. But now this Bar Kokhba comes about. His name means son of the star, which I'll talk about here in a moment. And he is a very charismatic guy. The Jews are loving him. As a matter of fact, there is going to be a rabbi named Akiva who is going to claim that he is the Messiah. Not Akiva is, but that Bar Kokhba is the Messiah. And so you have all these Jews following him. Not Messianics. Judaizing Jews. Rabbinic Judaism Jews. And anyway, they rebel against the Romans and now the Romans are fed up and they are going to come in and in 132 AD and a few years after absolutely make Jerusalem desolate. It was this third and final war between the Jews and the Romans. And the Jews never regain their political independence, which they had at this time, until 1948, from this point to 1948. So you can understand why the 1948 becoming a state was such a huge deal. But what happened is, following the failure of this result, uh, revolt, the Jewish society shifted from being uh, in Yavne, in Judah, to the Galilee area at that point. And they were no longer, um, you know, like I said, any political power or, or uh, organized power among themselves from that point. As a matter of fact, they were barred from even entering Jerusalem after this. You couldn't even go there. The Talmud, and what the Talmud is, would be the Tanakh, but, yeah, the, I'll say the Tanakh, the Bible. And I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, what the Talmud is. But for now, it is the Bible, and then you have 
important rabbis commenting on it, a commentary on it, and then you have other less important rabbis commenting on not only what the rabbis say, but what the Bible says. So it's a commentary of a commentary on the Bible. It is basically what the Talmud is, okay? Um, mostly man's words, not God's word. Mostly. And so anyway, um, the Talmud refers to Bar Kokhba as Ben Son Kosiva, which now means son of deception. So when the, it failed and they realized, oh, this wasn't the Messiah because what, did the, what were they looking for? They were looking for somebody who was going to bring in an earthly kingdom now. The same thing that the disciples were asking Jesus all the time. Are you, Lord, are you at, at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't understand that wasn't the kingdom that you know was supposed to happen there. And so they kept looking for it. Let's see. This is what Dio writes here in white. This is another historian about this fall of Jerusalem. 50 of their most important outposts and 985 of their most famous villages were razed to the ground. 580,000 men were slain in the various raids and battles, and the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. They say that it was well over a, a million people that perished beyond this 580,000. Nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate. And that was 132 A.D. Both Eusebius and other Jewish sources agree that the war ended with Bar Kokhba and his men making a final stand at the fortress here of Betar near Jerusalem. This is what it says. The rabbis linked the fall of Betar to the worst disasters to defall the Jewish people. On the 9th of Av, it was decreed upon our ancestors that they would not be allowed to enter the land of Israel. The first and second temples were destroyed. Betar was captured in the city of Jerusalem was plowed over. A guy named Judah HaNasi, which means Ha means the, Nasa, Nasi means the ruler, the prince. So Judah the prince um, said in Numbers 24-7, a star, which is in Hebrew, Kokav, shall come forth from Jacob. And he said it should actually read, a Kosav shall come forth from Jacob. A lie. Now this is a prophecy of the Messiah. And now this guy is saying that in Numbers 24, a prophecy of the Messiah wasn't supposed to say a star, it was supposed to say a lie. But they're not referring to Jesus as much as they're referring to Bar Kokhba. And so, remember, Bar Kokhba meant son of the star. And so they saw that as a prophecy of the Messiah's coming. Here, Rabbi Aki, or, uh, Kokhba, Bar Kokhba is being pronounced as a Messiah, and they're saying, no, he wasn't the son of the star, he was the son of a lie. And that's kind of what ends up happening. And so now, to this day, he is considered to be a son of the lie based on that. Just know that Jesus said, he warned, that many were going to come in his name, claiming, I am the Christ, and deceiving many. He warned that this was going to happen. And when I see the Jews, as I was saying before, it breaks my heart today to see many in Israel singing this song 
that many Christians see as such a dear thing, it breaks my heart because of this very same thing. They're setting themselves up for a false Messiah. When the Messiah has already come. I frankly believe that is what the Antichrist is going to do. That Israel, you know, I'm just spitballing here. As I said before, Ron thought it'd be great if, if America would take over Israel so that we would, you know, be in charge and then nobody would bother Israel anymore. And when I told him, no, that is a terrible thing. We are that splintered reed of a staff of Egypt, just like Israel is relying on another country before, you cannot rely on America. Israel doesn't want to rely on God. They want to rely on themselves and they want to rely on a coming Messiah. And so they keep singing, Lord, you know, you know, we're waiting for the Messiah and if he tarries, we'll wait. There's going to be somebody that's going to come and deceive once again, much like Bar Kokhba. And they're going to expect that he is going to bring some earthly, physical deliverance to bring the kingdom so that Israel, nobody will bother them again. And they're missing the point. And so even historically, what we're seeing, I think we're being set up for the same type of thing happening right now, today. I was just added this if I had time, and it looks like I do because I'm going to fly through this. Here is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, in Israel. It's a Catholic thing. It's a Catholic church built over top of where they believe Jesus was crucified. Now, it is a possibility that it was there because this is, it seems to be, historically, where this temple to Jupiter was built by Hadrian. Or, uh, yeah, whoever. Um, so you can see the cross um, there, the tomb supposed to be here, and there was a gate over here. I can't quite see where I'm at. Here, somewhere. The garden gate, it was called. Here's a little map where you'd have the garden gate. You go out the garden gate to the cross and the tomb being stone's throw away. Here is a model of Jerusalem from the backside if you've been there. On the back side, you can see the garden gate is there. So, um, I don't know if I have another picture that will help you understand where that's at a little bit more. But anyway, if you go inside that Catholic church today, there is this rock encased in a tomb. This is the original stone of that hill of what they believe is where the cross was in this quarry. And so, they call that the Rock of Calvary right there in that Catholic Church. Here is um, the temple. Again, from the back side, you can see here where I have Calvary marked. And they just say, John 19, you know, many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew. So at that time, it was outside of the city gates. What is now inside the old city, this church here. And so build a church over what I just showed you, and this is what they have, the tomb and that rock inside the church today. So you go in there today and you see Catholics are going and kissing the rock and you know doing all that kind of stuff. Here's just another map kind of showing you roughly where 
the gates of Jerusalem would have been during the time of Jesus. You go out the garden gate and then Calvary and the tomb being over there. Now, when I go take people, there is the garden tomb today, and that is over here on a different spot. Okay, I can see arguments for both places. Um, I personally like this one, but I can't deny the history of some of the things here. So going inside the church, these are the burial tombs that are inside the Catholic Church. Um, it does not seem to fit the description of what the Bible does for me. When John goes in, uh, you know, he bends down, he turns to his right, and there's a ledge where the garments are folded up. The garden tomb, one on the other side, has a much better description of that. No question, there were tombs that are here. And so, you know, but I, I would say I don't see how this could be the tomb of Jesus. But nonetheless, these are tombs that are in there. And the last group that we took, we actually went in and saw these here. <coughs> um, but keep in mind, during the time of Jesus, this was outside of the city gates. So here is Hadrian's temple that was built in 132 by Emperor Hadrian. And... Uh, one of the reasons he did this was to try and wipe out the memory of the Jews in a sense and to desecrate the place of the crucifixion. And so he built, built that temple of Jupiter on it. Here it is again just to show you where it's at, the church today. And I want to just show you what Eusebius says about this. Eusebius writes from 260 to 339 A.D. He, said, he was the bishop of Caesarea. And he said this, uh, filling in this quarry in building the temple. Quote, the Romans brought a quantity of earth from some distance with much labor and covered the entire spot and buried it. Then having raised this to a modern height, they paved it with stones, the monument of his most holy passions so long ago buried beneath the ground. So he's recording how the place that Jesus was at, the Romans buried and that's in 260. Okay. Now, technically, I think both places would fit that. Both had been buried by the time we found it. Interesting. He's got a good beard. Yeah. <laughs> so here is what they're saying, that the tomb is under the Temple of Jupiter when he built it there. Um, today in archaeology, some of the stairs to the Temple of Jupiter are seen in that church. So this temple remained for about 200 years until the time of Constantine, once Hadrian built it. We read this here from Jerome. From the time of Hadrian to the reign of Constantine, this spot that had witnessed the resurrection was occupied by a figure of Jupiter. While on the rock where the cross had stood, a marble statue of Venus was set up by the heathen and became an object of worship. The original persecutors indeed supposed that by polluting our holy places they would deprive us of our faith in the passion and in the resurrection. So, this is what Jerome says. Having seen what seems to be some of the stairs of Jupiter in that church, it gives that site some credibility. Um, Helena, Constantine's mom, 313 A.D., Constantine legalized Christianity, and so his mother was very passionate about Christ, so she went to the Holy Land and builds all these churches over all these different sites that are supposed to be 
you know, uh, holy. And so the church of the nativity in Bethlehem was built by, you know, with her. Hadrian's temple was destroyed. And then they built a church over it in 326 A.D. Um, and so in the process of the demolition, the tomb and Calvary, they say, were uncovered by Helena. And they even were, uh, supposedly found a piece of the cross. I doubt that, but that's just what they say. Okay. As soon as Constantine's commands were given, these engines of deceit were cast down from their proud eminence to very ground and dwelling places of error with the statues and the evil spirits which, which they represented were overthrown and utterly destroyed. Nor did the emperor's zeal stop here, but he gave further orders that the materials of what thus destroyed, both stone and timber, should be removed and thrown as far as the spot as possible with the command um, that was speedily executed. The emperor, however, was not satisfied with having proceeded thus far. Once more fired the holy adjure, he directed that the ground itself should be dug up to come to uh, considerable depth and the soil which had been polluted by the foul impurities of demon worship transported to a far distant place. So the Temple of Jupiter is what he's talking about. This also was accomplished without delay and as soon as the original surface of the ground beneath the covering of the earth appeared, immediately the venerable and holy monument of our Savior's resurrection was discovered. Then indeed did the most holy cave, referring to the tomb, pre uh, present a faithful similitude of his return to life and after that, lying buried in darkness, it again emerged to light and afforded to all who came to witness the sight a clear and visible proof of the wonders of which that spot had once seen. A testimony to the resurrection of the Savior clearer than any voice could give. This guy does not write like I would. I would like do that in two sentences. Accordingly, on the very spot which witnesses the Savior's suffering, a new Jerusalem was constructed, wherein the side opposite of this, uh, Jesus' tomb, which was on the eastern side, the church itself was erected, a noble work rising to a vast height and a great extent in length and breadth. Therefore, the emperor issued a sacred edict, and when he had provided an abundant supply of all the things required for the project, he gave orders that the house of prayer, worthy of God, should be erected uh, basically on the same spot. So they build a church there. And this is what we see. Okay. Yep. Here is the history of this church. In 614, the church was damaged. The one that Constantine built is damaged by the Turks. It was restored. In 648, Jerusalem went under, the, um, under Muslim control. Uh, the church still remained through that, though. In 1009, all churches were destroyed. So in 1048, it was restored again. In 112 and for till 149, under the Crusaders, they re, uh, renovated the thing. In 1808, there was a fire, so part of the tomb was renovated. And basically, while the you know church decorations and all of the Catholicism of it may be offensive to many, the fact is is you have to appreciate that this spot historically seems to be able to be collaborated for many years. And so you do have the site that I take people to, the garden tomb, which is here. You turn in, and it's a big area. I don't know, maybe a 10-foot by 10-foot area. You turn to the side, and there are spots, you know, to lay the things. I don't know which is the one. We know that only one of the two tombs in here was used, so nobody else used it. It's a rich man's tomb. A lot of different things. I say all of this to say this. <laughs> Who cares? The fact is, Jesus is alive. 
And while they do all of this emphasis and money and whatever to try and say that, you know, we're going to desecrate this area by building a thing to Jupiter, it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want to the temple. We're the temple. We're the temple. And these holy places, it, it just amazes me how much we have a desire to worship physical things. And we don't. We don't need that. So, like I said, I am not crazy about this because it's just history, but at the same time, I want you to see God's faithfulness. The things that we're going to follow from here, number one, we are the temple. Number two, that there was a remnant that was spared that escaped because they listened to the Word of God. While that remnant went this way, there's another group of people that have gone this way and have started something called Rabbinic Judaism. Next time, I'm going to explain a little bit about the, the Talmud, and I want you to see why this is something that we should not put our trust in. And while I think there's value in some of it, we can hear, you know, the Talmud says this, where the Talmud says that, um, that is not ever to be a source of um, faith in anything. Because it's man's, it's, it's a commentary. You might as well read the NIV study Bible and get your doctrine from that, from the, from the notes. Because, and, and actually you'd, you'd be better off doing that because these are written by people who have denied the Messiah, who have not seen the Messiah. And so among Messianics sometimes, and again, I'm not even saying that's what we are, but what I'm saying is that I see Messianics taking Jewishness and lifting it up and, and almost putting it equal with God's Word in the Scriptures. And I think you need to understand where this stuff is coming from so that you understand that this is not some place to put your faith in. The Word of God is all you need. The, the Messianics, the Nazarenes, they had what they needed and they were spared because of it. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm taking you and why I think that this is important to keep people from going off a ledge sometimes. So let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just all the the things that you have done throughout history. Lord, I know that while we didn't really dive into Scripture much tonight, um, we see your faithfulness and we see that um, you are alive and you are here with us. You are King of kings and Lord of lords and you are the sacrifice that has made perfect once for all and we are so grateful for that, that there be need not be another sacrifice. There need not be good works. There need not be anything else for atonement. But it has been done by you on that cross. And I pray, Lord, for, for all of the Jews out there who have not seen this yet, that you would open their eyes and that, as you have said in your word in Romans, and that a day is coming when the fullness of Gentiles will come in and and their eyes will be opened. And so we pray that that day would come and that you would give us opportunities to share the love of Jesus with those who do not know him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.